You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Uh, we've got two readings in First Thessalonians. I'm going to start by reading First Thessalonians chapter 1 and then move over to chapter 8. Um, so I'd encourage you to pull out a Bible. If you don't have one on you, there's lots of Bibles in the aisles. So First Thessalonians starting at chapter 1. Verse 1. Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance, inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And then flip over to chapter 5, verse 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Good morning, everyone. My name is Adam, if I haven't met you before. Uh, There is a kids' sheet, as uh, Aaron mentioned, uh, a sermon sheet to help kids to focus during the sermon, and I'll kind of draw your attention to that uh, throughout the sermon so the kids know when to fill in some answers on that sheet. Uh, For the bigger people, there's an outline on the welcome card. If that's helpful for you, feel free to uh, jump onto the website and to follow that along. Uh, Let's pray as we come to think about this passage. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd be with us on this last day of 2023. Help us to consider uh, the year that's gone and the year that's ahead and to think about what it means to live as your people and to do that well in your world. And so please speak to us through your word today, speak to our hearts, fill our hearts up with lots of new and good truths uh, from your word so that we might be able to uh, rejoice and pray and give thanks to you. Amen. What's your New Year's resolution? Is there something you want to change about your life in 2024? Perhaps you want to eat less or exercise more. Perhaps you want to declutter your house. Perhaps you want to work on some friendships. Perhaps you want to learn a new skill. 
December 31st is a time for looking back at the past 12 months and it usually involves some regret. We regret our mistakes and our missed opportunities. And so we resolve that next year will be different. We'll do better, we'll be better. And sometimes this works, but more often than not, our resolutions quickly fall apart. We end up feeling disillusioned. So this time around, I want us to think about taking a different approach. I want us to consider a heart-shaped New Year's resolution. Not thinking about romance, rather than thinking about our inner selves. Too often we focus on external activities. Do more stuff, try more things, engage in more self-care. But these tend not to change who we are as people. We need a resolution that goes deeper that goes to the inner person. After all, it's from the heart that we live. Our desires, our attitudes, our deep-held convictions, they reside within us and give shape to our words, to our deeds. And so if you really want to live differently in 2024, then you need to get your heart into better shape. You need a heart-shaped New Year's resolution. Which brings us to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 18. In these three verses, the Apostle Paul gives us a three-part command calling us to be joyful, prayerful and thankful. Now these may sound like external activities, but ultimately they're about the shape of your heart and where you direct your heart. This morning I want to unpack this three-part command and show you that Christians are called to turn their hearts together towards joyfulness, prayerfulness and thankfulness. And sticking with the idea of threes, I want to show you that we obey Paul's commands in three contexts, as Christians, as individuals and as a congregation. So let's look at the first one. It's, only really, uh, it's really important that we understand that this command is only possible if you are in Christ. It's a command to Christians. Yet this command is not an Oprah Winfrey self-help principle about thinking happy thoughts and then watching your life turn around. This is about a real, lasting, deep joy that is only possible for those who are in Christ. This is about a life of prayer that's only achievable for those who are in Christ. This is about a daily existence characterised by thankfulness that is only possible for those who are in Christ. That's what Paul means in the second part of verse 18. Have a look. He says, For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's will is for us to be joyful prayerful and thankful, but it's a will for those who are in Christ. In other words, it's those who are united to him by faith because they've trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And because of this union with Christ, they're actually changed from the inside out. It's an important theme that's found throughout this letter. You may remember we spent time studying 1 Thessalonians earlier this year. 
You might also remember that Paul had preached the gospel to the Jews and Greeks living in the city of Thessalonica, and many had come to faith. But not long after that, he'd been chased out of town by an angry mob. And so he was worried about how these new believers had fared in his absence. And then he was overjoyed when he received the good news that they were persevering because they had genuinely been transformed. They were living new lives. And so Paul wrote this letter in response. In the letter, he sought to remind them of key truths about Christian belief and to encourage them to keep living out their faith. And so all throughout this book, we see that Christian obedience begins with God working in people's hearts. We look to what God has done and is doing, and then we respond by living new lives. It's actually made pretty clear in the first chapter of this book. So if you've got a Bible open, turn to chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, then have a look at verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So how did the Thessalonians welcome the message of the gospel? With joy. And who gave them that joy? The Holy Spirit. Only those who, who are united to Christ by faith can receive the Spirit of God. So this joy is only possible for Christians. It's the same with the prayer that we're to engage in and the thanksgiving we're supposed to give. These are only possible by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds. Can you see then that this command we're looking at today can only be obeyed by Christians? And God gives us the power to obey it. But you might be wondering, how on earth can you command people to be joyful? I can't control my feelings. How is it possible to pray continually? I mean, surely I've got to have normal conversations with people. I even have to sleep at times. And how can I give thanks in all circumstances? Because sometimes my life is terrible. We'll begin to answer these as we now turn to look at how we are to obey this command as individuals. In verse 16 of our passage, Paul writes, Rejoice always. That's the whole verse. It's an easy one to memorise, isn't it? This is about a joy that wells up inside and expresses itself in rejoicing. It's a command to joy. So kids, listen up. Here's an answer for your sermon sheet. Before we look at how God can command joy, let me ask you this. What is it that Christians have to be joyful about? It's the gospel, right? The Thessalonians realised that because of their wrongdoing, God's wrath, his judgment was coming against them, yet Jesus came to rescue them from that wrath. All they had to do was trust in Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the good news. As we recently learned in the book of Ephesians, the natural state of a human is to be spiritually dead, to be cut off from God, to, to not be part of the life that God can give us. Yet God will make alive with Christ anyone who simply puts their faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. All our guilt and shame and failures are forgiven if we repent and believe. Christians are fully accepted, 
fully accepted by God, fully secure, fully loved. I'm going to ask you a hard question now. Does that make you happy? When you think about that, does that give you any joy at all? Now, maybe it's still early on a Sunday morning. Maybe you're not quite there yet. But let me just say, when you think about the gospel, when you think about what Jesus has done for you, if you experience zero joy, then perhaps you're not yet in Christ. It's worth reflecting on. I'd be more than happy to have a chat with you after the service, if you'd like. But if you are a believer, if you've trusted in Jesus, then the gospel will bring you joy. Yet you might ask, how can we rejoice always? Surely I'll feel joy from time to time, but how can I do that always? Doesn't that sound like manufacturing emotions, being fake? You know, fake smile, forced laughter. Well, this is actually about a posture in life. It's about setting a direction. You can actually be joyful, and you do it by turning your heart towards joy. This is where we get to our heart-shaped resolution. The first part of doing this is to recognise that This is a command to rejoice, not a description of what your life will always be like. We've studied the book of Psalms this year as well, and you know that the Psalms are filled with calls to the people of God to rejoice in the Lord. Think about it this way. If rejoicing in God was something that required no effort and just happened naturally for us, there wouldn't need to be commands in the Bible about it. You wouldn't need to put the call out. You wouldn't need the book of Psalms to call us to rejoice. But we do need help. We do need the encouragement. And so Christians are commanded to rejoice and be joyful. We turn our hearts towards joy by reminding ourselves of the gospel, by remembering that we are saved in Christ, remembering that we have the hope of heaven We fellowship with other Christians and we share about how God has been at work in our lives so that as we see the joy of others, our hearts are stirred up to joy also. We rejoice in what God is doing in the lives of other people. We sing to God songs of praise so that as our mouths sing out words of joy, our hearts are enticed. They're called to follow. And so the ordinary life of the Christian is about continually turning our hearts to joy, whether we're feeling happy or sad or confused or angry or satisfied or dry. And the reason we have to turn our hearts to joy is because joy ultimately comes from God. The real, lasting, deep joy we learn for is actually a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of his work in our lives. So one way to think about this is that cultivating joy is like flying a kite. Sorry. There we go. Bit of a sneak peek there. Imagine you have the most amazing kite. It's made up of your your favourite colours. It has a magnificent tail. It's incredibly light but also tough. I don't know, whatever is exciting about a kite. That's, That's what it has. 
Now, what would happen if you left the kite in your lounge room? Would it fly? No. What would a friend think if you said to them, yeah, I've got this amazing kite here, but I'm just waiting for it to work. You know, if it started flying, then I'd take it outside, but it's not really doing anything. Surely your friend would say, don't be dumb. The kite won't fly unless you take it outdoors. Now get out there and put the effort in. So we often wait for joy to come spontaneously. We sit in our lounge room and we go, I'm not going to have any joy until God just gives it to me. And we grumble that the spirit isn't blowing today. He's not doing his work. But just like a kite, unless you're prepared, nothing will happen. Get your joy out. See what happens when you start rejoicing. You may just find the spirit starts to move and your joy takes off. Now, of course, just like there are days with no wind, there are days where it feels like the Spirit's not really doing much. But that's why Paul gives the command, right? We are to be prepared by rejoicing always. You need to keep turning your heart to joy so that when the Spirit does work, when he does move, he will lift you up in joy. And so get your kite ready. The second command Paul gives is for us to be prayerful. So kids, listen up. Here's the second answer for your sermon sheet. Let's have a look at verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 5. Pray continually. They've got another short verse. If your goal was to memorise some scripture before the end of the year, you can memorise these two verses and say, I've memorised part of the Bible. So how can you pray any time? Well, because your heavenly Father is with you. At the start of Paul's letter, he says that God is the Father of the Thessalonians. He's our loving Father too, and so he invites us to speak to him in prayer. After my son Toby learned to talk, he became a real chatterbox. There's an old picture of him. And when he was younger, he would ask for a drink. And even as I was walking to the fridge to get him that drink, he'd keep asking me to get him a drink because he felt completely free to ask me for things. Nowadays, kids are a bit older, and at dinner time, we'll sometimes have all three children talking at the same time. And so Tracy and I have to tell them to be quiet because there's too much talking going on and our brains are full. Well, thankfully, our Heavenly Father isn't limited in the way that earthly fathers are. God's never overwhelmed by the amount of things we say to him. He never gets tired or worn out or bored. He never gets frustrated that we keep asking for the same thing over and over again. He can always hear us wherever we are. We should be praying all through the day because God is with us always. And he invites us to ask him for help. He invites us to relate to him. He invites us to share our thoughts and our struggles and our fears and hopes and joys with him. This is the wonderful result of believing in the gospel. God is your father in heaven and he's always with you. So make the most of it. And just like my kids like to talk to me about everything and anything... Speak to God about everything and anything. 
But you might be wondering how you can pray continually. I mean, surely there are other things you need to do in your life. You can't just be constantly praying. Well, you can be continually prayerful by turning your heart towards God. In the act of prayer, we are reaching out to God and by the power of his spirit and through the work of Jesus, our words are taken up into the heavenly realms where they reach the throne of God. Prayer is about communing with God, walking with God. When we turn our heart towards him in various ways, we are strengthening that communion. It becomes second nature to just shoot off a prayer when we're happy or sad or trying to make a tough decision. And by turning our heart towards God, we are reminding ourselves that we can pray anytime, anywhere. We don't have to wait until we've gone to a special place. We don't have to say special words. And also, we don't have to just save up certain words to share with God. You know, sometimes we can wrongly believe that some topics are like too trivial or boring for us to pray to God about. We think, oh, God doesn't want to be bothered about that prayer request or that thought. I'll just keep it to myself. But God's our loving Father in heaven who delights to hear from us. So we just express our thoughts. We make our requests. We offer our praise. And we can do this continually because there is nothing that can hinder us from approaching the throne of grace. The third command whoops, the third command that Paul gives us is to be thankful in all circumstances. So kids, listen up. Here's the third answer for your sermon sheet. This is a bit of a tricky one, so you have to listen. Let's look at the first part of verse 18 in 1 Thessalonians 5. Give thanks in all circumstances. So why can you be thankful at any time? Well, because God is generous and God is in control. I'll say that again. God is generous and God is in control. Every good thing we have is from God. And so we have reason to give thanks to God every single day. Each day of life is a blessing. And also God is in control of all things. So nothing happens without God permitting it. That might seem a bit odd. Does God choose for bad things to happen to us? Well, what's the alternative? Surely it would be that when bad things happen, God has lost control. But that's not the picture that the Bible presents us. Our God is totally sovereign and nothing happens against his will. Paul was worried that after he fled Thessalonica that the new church would have collapsed. But he received news that the believers were instead thriving. And he realised that Paul was not in control of this church. God was in control of this church. Paul was not in control of his plans. God was in control of his plans. And even though they were painful and difficult and he suffered at times, he could give thanks to God. In the same way we can thank God for the good things that we delight in. And we can also thank him in the midst of bad things because he is still in control. So listen carefully to this. We don't have to thank God for all circumstances, but we can thank God in all circumstances. 
We don't have to thank him for all circumstances, but we can thank him in all circumstances. So how is it that we do this? How can we grow in thankfulness? You probably know where this is headed. It's again about the heart. You can do this by turning your heart towards the hope of heaven. In chapter 1, Paul writes that one of the main ways the Thessalonians showed their faith was waiting for Jesus to come from heaven. Jesus is described there as the one who rescues people from the coming wrath. The gospel holds out a wonderful promise that one day we'll be made perfect. We will dwell forever with our God and all pain and tears will be wiped away. What a wonderful hope that we have. And as we turn our hearts to that hope, we'll see more and more reasons to give thanks. And first of all, you can give thanks that your life isn't worse than it already is. We often think in terms of how our life could be better and we get downhearted when events don't turn out the way we would like. But, I don't know, maybe you think about this, maybe you don't, but your life could be a lot worse. And in fact, we deserve a lot worse, don't we? We deserve God's anger, his judgment, his wrath. The fact that we have any good at all is purely because of God's love for us not because of our own worthiness or our own achievements. So that should drive us to thankfulness. I remember once I was having a bad day. Lots of things had gone wrong. Grumpy, frustrated. I remember I was out walking, muttering away, turning over all these things I was frustrated about in my mind. And all of a sudden, a bird poo fell out of the sky and landed right in front of me, between my feet. Stop me dead in my tracks. And I, this might sound a bit weird, right? But I felt that this was a message from God. It was like he was saying, Adam, you think today was the worst day possible, but at least you don't have bird poo on your head. Again, it might sound weird, but I realised that things could have been worse. And believe it or not, in a strange way, that genuinely helped me. It really turned my mood around And I did end up praising God. Secondly, you can give thanks that one day your life will get better. The hope of heaven is that one day all the mess and garbage will be thrown out. All the sadness, injuries and brokenness will be removed, will be healed, will be perfected, will be made whole. And that gives you cause for thankfulness. You see, each bad situation reminds you that you're not there yet and that should build our longing for heaven. And God can use even bad situations to bring about good as he teaches you important lessons, as he grows you in godliness, as he increases your faith. We can give thanks to God in all circumstances because all circumstances are opportunities for God to grow us to remind us of his generosity and to remind us of his control over all things. Can you see then that Paul's command to be joyful, prayerful and thankful is actually achievable? It's because of the gospel and through the gospel. We are in Christ and so we can do it. 
It's because of who God is and what he's doing in our lives. We're empowered by the Spirit and so we can do it. Do you feel a lack of joy? Well, get your kite out. Sing Christian songs. Pray for joy. Look out for God's blessings. Do you find it hard to pray to God? Or maybe come up with a plan. Start small, even just two minutes a day. Put prompts around the house to remind you to pray, to to give thanks to God, to send your requests to him. In fact, to help you, I've got these little prayer planners that you might find useful just to organise your thoughts, write down some prayer requests that you would like to focus on and bring before God. There'll be some up on the morning tea table later on. And do you find it hard to thank God? Or maybe write some lists. One of my habits is that at the end of the day, before I fall asleep at night, I pray to God and I thank him for all the things that happened during the day. Mostly the good things, but sometimes I'm godly enough to pray even for the bad things, for the ways in which God grew me or helped me to get through. When life is going well, thank God. When life is not going well, thank God that there's better yet to come. And again, let me be clear that these are actions we do to turn our hearts towards God and the gospel. We can't manufacture spiritual change. We can't change who we are on the inside. But we can humbly keep in step with the Holy Spirit and trust that he will continue to shape and reshape our hearts. This can be tough work. And that's why our last main point is so important. We should seek to obey Paul's three-part command as a congregation. This would have been obvious to the Thessalonians as they read this letter, but we've been influenced by centuries of individualistic thinking. We tend to consider ourselves as separate beings who just happen to live near a bunch of other separate beings. But most ancient cultures, and even many cultures today, think in terms of community. They consider how they are part of a group. They consider the impact of their actions on others. If you study this chapter closely, you'll see that it's addressed to a group of people, to a community. And they're being called to give expression to these commands within that community, even within the church gathering. And so these actions are ones that we should be doing as we gather each Sunday to worship God. Let's go back and look at them again. First of all, we are to rejoice together. There are many ways that we can do that as a church, to show joy, but a clear one, obviously, is when we sing. We are to sing praises to God and we do this in response to the gospel. I'll let you in a little secret. Maybe you've noticed this, maybe you haven't. But the way we plan and structure our church services is that the first and second songs tend to be ones of joy. Because we want to turn our hearts towards praise. We want to help you to get your kites out. And then we pray that the Holy Spirit will move and lift us up. There have been times when I've come to church feeling flat or distracted. But after singing gospel truths with words of joy, I found my heart begin to change. In fact, joy is a key purpose of singing. 
Even sadder songs, lament songs, have the goal of joy. Think about it. Why do we sing sad songs? Why do we sing, from the depths I cry to you? Surely it's not because we want to feel miserable. Surely it's not because we're saying, God, my heart feels weighed down. Would you please double that weight and bury me in my misery? I'm going to sing lament songs so that when I leave church, I'll feel like rubbish. It's not why we sing. We're not asking God to help our pain to take root and grow. Rather, we're giving voice to our grief. We're expressing our sadness and having faith that God will lift us up out of our misery that God will fill our hearts with joy. And that's the end goal of our lives, joy in God. So every time you sing in church, whether it's a hymn of praise or a song of lament, remember that you are obeying this command in 1 Thessalonians. You're being joyful. And some encouragement to you all, when you sing up loudly, doesn't have to be beautifully, but when you sing up loudly, you encourage your brothers and sisters to turn their hearts to joy as well. Number two, the second thing we are to do when gathered for church services is to pray together. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? You come to church, you expect that there'll be prayer. But do you pray along with the person who's praying up the front? Or do you see there's a time to kind of tune out, to work through your checklist of what you have to do on the way home, got to go to the shops... What's your plans for tomorrow? We can actually be praying together. Even when there's just one person up the front praying, we can be repeating the words in our mind, in our hearts. You can do that so that they become your words too. So that you can say, Amen. Say that loudly and with confidence because you have taken those words and that's your prayer as well. And even outside of church services, do you make the most of opportunities to pray with your church family in other contexts? Does your gospel community set aside time for prayer? When your GC has a prayer night, are you excited and you turn up ready to pray or do you see it as a reason to have a night off? Do you get involved in church prayer meetings? I'm sorry to say, but corporate prayer is a real weakness for our church. And I hope this is something that will change in 2024. That we would be continually praying, not just individually, but as a church. But let's start by praying that each of our hearts would be turned towards prayerfulness so that we might better pray together. Number three, finally, we're almost there. We are to give thanks together. Your joyfulness and thankfulness are two qualities that should characterise Christians because more than any other group in the world, we have the most reason to exhibit them. And that means these qualities should particularly characterise our Sunday gatherings. We've been saved by the creator of the universe so that we can have eternal life with him. We have eternal peace and joy to look forward to and it's all a free gift from God. And so that gives us endless reasons to thank God. And so thanksgiving should be a key part of what we do during our services. This can be expressed in our singing, in our prayers, in our response to the word read and preached. 
We can even thank one another for the acts of service that go into making a church service happen. And one of the supreme activities of thanksgiving is the Lord's Supper. We're sharing this together. Maybe you've heard in some churches the Lord's Supper is referred to as the Eucharist, which literally means thanksgiving. It's a thanksgiving meal. Each time as we eat the bread and drink the juice, we are remembering the sacrifice of Christ. And this should turn us to thanksgiving. We should be doing this together. Well, there you have it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. I hope you can see that this is a wonderful piece of scripture. Short and punchy, but a lot in there. It focuses our minds on what should characterise the believer. Joyfulness, prayerfulness and thankfulness. This is made possible by the work of God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And so as you consider your New Year's resolution for 2024, why not make it a heart-shaped one? Why not commit to turning your heart towards joyfulness, prayerfulness and thankfulness? And why not commit to doing that with the rest of the believers here at DPC? How wonderful would it be to have people visit us next year and they come away with a real sense that the Holy Spirit is at work in the midst of us and they clearly see in the way we engage in the church service, the way we treat one another, that our hearts are overflowing with joy, prayer and thanksgiving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you sent your Son to rescue us, to save us, to give us hope and to fill our hearts with joy. Father God, we pray that your Spirit will be at work powerfully as we enter into a new year. May he turn our hearts towards joyfulness, prayerfulness and thankfulness so that they would overflow naturally and organically from us as you work spiritually within us. Maybe something that characterises our gatherings, characterises us as a church, so that more and more people are drawn to you and that they would join us in rejoicing, in praying and in giving thanks to you every day. Amen.